So in the last three episodes of the podcast, we had Jason Caldwell on talking about his journeys rowing across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. On these journeys, each time there was a moment, a moment when one individual on the team struggled. In his first trip across the Atlantic, it was actually two individuals. One got sick and had to be rescued off the ship, and the other guy essentially abandoned ship at that opportunity. However, in his second journey across the Atlantic, um, one of the four team members got really sick in the first week. If you listen back to the podcast, you know this part. But, you know, so throwing him overboard wasn't an option for, for Jacob and the rest of the team. However, in his second journey across the Atlantic, one of the four team members got really sick in the first week. Now, throwing him overboard wasn't an option uh, for the other three members of the team. Anchoring and getting him rescued would cost them the race and the world record, which they had set out to do. Uh, and also, the, the, the reality was this individual, Matt, uh, he was their strongest rower. They needed Matt. You know, they needed him to be on there and to be pulling. And so what did the team do? Well, they supported him. You know, he was able to sit out shifts and they pulled, you know, pulled extra weight and did some extra shifts. I mean, essentially, they did everything they could just to bring him along and to get him healthy. And at the end of the day, the boat was stronger not just because he came through and he's their strongest rower and he's back on the oars, but the connection, the culture was stronger because they stood by that individual. They supported him. And I think this isn't just a metaphor. I think this is a reality for a lot of us as coaches, right? We have certain individuals which we might label as challenging, difficult, uh, the problem child, or they're a head case, or they're uncoachable, or they're a jerk, right? We have all these labels, but yet, Throwing them overboard isn't an option. Uh, maybe we pulled in the wrong recruit. Uh, maybe we selected the wrong player for our team. Or we're just in a coaching situation where we just have to take what we get regardless uh, of the situation. So here we are. We have set out on this journey, just like Jason's journey on the boat. And we've got to work with that individual to support that individual. How do we best do that? Well, that's what we're going to get into in today's episode of the Coaching Culture Podcast. Welcome back, or welcome to our first-time listeners. My name is JP Nurbin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nate Sanderson. I founded TOC Culture Consulting almost seven years ago, and I did it to help coaches become better leaders and build better cultures. We provide one-on-one coaching for leaders, as well as culture coaching and consulting. If you want to learn more about that, head on over to tocculture.com. There, you can also subscribe to the newsletter to get the notes to this episode of the podcast and every episode of the podcast. In this episode, I will also be mentioning my new book, The Culture System, multiple times. Uh, If you enjoy this podcast, I highly recommend you give it a read. Just got a shout out actually on Twitter from a coach who said, it's been a much needed breath of fresh air for my coaching. So maybe, maybe that's just what you need as well. Anyways, let's get into my conversation with Nate. Nate, you've been coaching nearly 20 years now. You've had your fair share of challenging players, and you've worked with a lot of coaches on this topic as well. Where do you start? Well, JP, I think whenever you're faced with coaching a difficult player, and quite honestly, in most seasons, you're going to have at least one that presents some unique challenges. In order for us to kind of couch our conversation a little bit today, we're talking in broad terms here, right? So what brings that difficulty to the team could be a lot of different causes. It could be somebody that's 
frustrated with their playing time. It could be somebody that's a, a selfish kid or is uncoachable or is a bit of a head case or, um, you know, as a temper or a difficult personality. I mean, there's lots of things that can make players difficult to coach. Um, and so we're just talking in kind of broad terms here, but I think that leads us to the first sort of phase or the place where we would typically start is, and that's just trying to understand what we're dealing with here. You know, if you're working with a personality that's difficult, you know, that doesn't accept criticism or that flies off the handle when things don't go the right way, or they respond to stress and anger, you know, trying to understand why that happens, where that comes from, what those triggers are. You know, sometimes it's as simple as you have a conversation with mom and dad and you're like, okay, this makes perfect sense now. You know, and other times there's something deeper there. You know, if it's a playing time issue, for example, I remember talking with a player a couple of years ago who, who had this frustration that she couldn't seem to get over. And as we started unpacking it more in conversation, just asking why was that so important to her, you know, and some things like that, it came out that she's getting all this pressure at home and from her AAU coaches that she should be playing more. And that, you know, she wanted to be respectful of me as the coach, but that was making things really difficult for her outside the gym. Well, how I then deal with her, you know, or try to help her navigate that is very different from, you know, a different situation. So I think it starts with really trying to understand, to ask a lot of questions, to have your one-on-ones with that player and really to be curious, you know, without being judgmental about their behaviors, at least in the beginning. Yeah. I think there's a lot of tools that we like to give coaches to, you know, work with these individuals, Nate, but you've touched on the most important piece. And in fact, when we shift our mindset towards being more curious towards individuals, a lot of times the problem is solved right then and there. What I mean by that is, you know, so oftentimes the way that we view other people when we see them as a problem, we see them as this obstacle that we have to, you know, you know, this big challenge. They see that, they feel that, you know, as a player, and they probably feel that in other areas of their life and other teams and in the classroom. And so they respond towards that mindset because they, you know, they're, they're commonly, because they recognize that people view them, that you, you know, we as a coach view them that way. But when we come with curiosity and this, this mindset of curiosity, we're able to have a better chance of connecting with that individual to better understanding, you know, not just what's going on with them, but some solutions and help and help guide them. So, and we're going to talk a lot about some of these things and ways that we can support these individuals, but just coming in and being curious like that, that in itself is just so powerful. And so if you are facing another season and you've got a player that you see as a problem, this would be my encouragement for you as to first take a step towards, okay, they're not a problem. They have a problem. But even more so than that, I would take another step for, further to not see this person or that individual as someone with a problem, but someone on a journey, someone that's on a journey to becoming a better individual and learning and growing. And if you start to see that individual is on a journey, this journey of life, right? I think it changes the way that we view them and it changes how we see our role as a coach. You know, when we start to maybe enter more into that relationship as a mentor, uh, someone that can help guide them rather than someone that's going to come in there and fix this problem. 
JP, I think there's another angle to this idea of being curious and seeking understanding when it comes to dealing with a difficult player. And here, here's a phrase sometimes that coaches will use. They'll say, this kid, he pushes my buttons. This kid's always pushing my buttons. And what does that mean? It means that whatever his behaviors are, we tell ourselves a story that the kid is deriving pleasure from watching us become agitated or get frustrated or you know get under our skin it's as though it's a game that the kid is playing. And my caution to coaches is that if you've ever used that phrase before, the issue here is not the kid, it's you. Like the part that you need to explore understanding and be curious about is, why are these my buttons? So the question that I would ask myself in that situation is why are my buttons wired to respond that way to these kind of behaviors? Because if I don't start to understand that about myself, then all of a sudden I, I become agitated. I become angry. You know, I start reacting instead of making a choice to respond. And no longer am I dealing with this, this human being over here that's on a journey, as you described there, JP. Now I'm just coming down hard. I'm reacting to the behavior in some sort of usually confrontational manner that oftentimes is not very productive, but it's because I don't have an adequate understanding of myself in this situation. And that prevents me from seeing my player as a person, the one that I'm really trying to coach and interact with. I think that's great, Nate. And I think this reminds me, this, this conversation right now reminds me of the story around John Wooden. And John Wooden was coming out with a very, very popular um, you know, book around basketball coaching. And he had a section of that book titled Handling Players. And he, before the book was about to be published and released, he heard a press conference where Wilt Chamberlain, who was labeled a difficult player in the NBA, you know, the guy that scored 100 points, and Wilt Chamberlain was traded to the Lakers. And a reporter asks Wilt, they say, hey, Wilt, do you think the coaching staff's going to be able to handle you? You've been kind of labeled as hard to handle. And Wilt just respond, responds, you handle farm animals, you work with people. I'm a person, I can work with anyone. And that was so profound when, when Wooden heard that, that he went back and he, he changed the title of those chapters from handling players to working with players. And, and I think that this whole mindset is what we're really trying to encourage coaches so that when they get into some of this practical stuff, you know, that it is actually going to be more effective at the end of the day too. Now that mindset, Nate, that's really important that we're carrying that into some very valuable conversations that we encourage uh, the coaches that we work with to have with their players. And, you know, I talk about it in, in part two of my, the book, the culture system, but it's the, these player development plans, these player improvement plans where essentially coaches early in the season, sit down with players and they talk about their aspirations, their goals. They, they talk about their current reality, where they are in relation to those goals and, and their areas for growth. They look at all the options they have to, to work on those things and they come up with a plan. Now, if we come into that conversation with a very, you know, that this mindset that our player has a problem or they are a problem, you know, we're going to just be fixing. We're just going to be telling them what we see is wrong with them. But when we come into that conversation with curiosity, we're going to naturally start to ask a lot more questions. We're going to start from this place of seeking to understand. And that's going to change how that message is going to be heard. In fact, the player themselves may admit to things that we might have accused them of and, and, and recognize certain behaviors, but they would have become 
self-aware of those and taken more responsibility than if we had just told them. And I think about a, a recent conversation I had with a, with a college hockey coach. He had an individual that was labeled early on as the difficult, the challenging player. But he went into that, that conversation with curiosity. And when he walked away was the player had, first off, goals and aspirations. One of those was to become a, a coach someday. That, that, that was like one of, their, one of their goals and aspirations. And, and then secondly, that they did have a level of awareness of their behaviors and how they were negative within the team. You know, sometimes lashing out, not taking coaching well. But the coach also learned about a lot of other things going on with that individual's life around certain mental health challenges and issues there, difficulty sleeping. Now, in that, in that very conversation, the coach didn't really have any solutions. They just took it in. They were curious. They were under, you know, very understanding. But in a follow-up conversation, the coach came, you know, followed back up the, the next week and sat down with that individual and said, hey, I've been thinking about you know, your situation and I want to help. You know, let's, let's talk a little bit more about it. And they walked through and he kind of coached this individual through some, some steps they could take to start to work on some of those, not just behaviors, but on the, the root cause of the behavior. <laughs> Sleep, for instance, right? Getting, you know, getting help around the mental health. And, and here, it's a vastly different conversation because the coach didn't come in and tell the player that they had a problem, but really understood what was the, at the root of that individual's challenges and, and, and their difficulties. And it drastically has already changed that relationship this year. And there's been some big wins, you know, that, that are already carrying into the season. Well, JP, the classic example that comes to mind as you're describing that they're really trying to understand the issue. You know, you can't be on coach Twitter for more than five minutes without coming across a tweet of a, the latest, you know, shot of the bench or the sidelines with a player with their head down or their helmets off or their body language is terrible. And then there's some sort of proverb about, you know, how we have to have great body language to be winning or whatever, right? Everybody loves to rip on body language. Everybody loves the Gino clip where he's talking about having great body language on the bench. But just telling a player, just like you said, look, man, you got to fix your body language if you want to play for this team, does absolutely nothing to help serve that player overcome whatever their issue is that's causing the body language. But nobody ever asks, why is a player responding this way? That's never on coach Twitter, right? And so, you know, for our players, bad body language to me is a symptom of something I don't yet understand about that player. And so again, it becomes sort of this uh, adventure project of trying to figure out what is it that's causing them to react to failure in a, in a certain way, as an example. So as an example of that, this morning, JP, we had seventh grade girls basketball practice. First one of the year, 6.15 this morning before school. I'm going in to kind of help out a little bit. We're asking, you know, we got players that are playing basketball maybe for the first time, and we got some players that are playing AAU all in the same gym. So we're trying to do some left-handed layups, you know, just kind of getting loose or whatever. And we've got two or three kids that, I mean, they don't know how to shoot a left-handed layup. They can't get their hand under the ball. It's going over the backboard. One of them comes off the bottom of the rim, smokes her in the face. Like, you know, it, it's ugly, okay? And so we're trying to encourage them. We're just trying new things or whatever. And right afterwards, you know, a couple of times, this one girl in particular, I mean, she's really struggling. So she would get to the basket, realize she's in the wrong place, just stop, pick up her ball and go to the end of the other line. What do you try? You know, and kind of hangs her head like she's trying to hide or whatever. And so right afterwards, uh, we stopped practice. We came into the circle. I put them in groups of three and I asked them to share. I said, why don't you tell each other a story? 
about a time that you tried to do something for the first time and it didn't go very well. It doesn't have to be about sports, it, you know, whatever you want. It. So kids are talking, you know, I'm telling our assistant coach about the time I put the diaper on backwards, you know, with the first kid or whatever. And so one girl's talking about making banana bread and another girl's talking about riding a bike with flip-flops and, you know, everybody's got their stories of failure. And we asked what that felt like. You know, it was like, oh, it's embarrassing. And, you know, especially when other people are watching, whatever, right? And then we ask, well, what do you need? What can we do to help each other in those moments of failure? Because I'm going to ask all of you to learn new things. And we're going we're gonna to have a little dance with that feeling every once in a while in practice. So what can we do for each other, right? So the, the whole point of that was beyond the body language of just grabbing the ball and going to the end of the line in shame was to acknowledge this is what's causing that feeling to normalize it and then to bring the team around that person or around each other to support them. So hopefully, you know, that they gain a little bit of courage to be able to press through those things through that mutual support from their teammates. And what I love about this, Nate, is, is, is really what we're talking about now is how can we support the individual? And one of the things that you did through that activity, which is phenomenal, by the way, is you normalize stress and adversity. You got people to share struggles. And through that experience, through that conversation, you're creating psychological safety, you know, which is so critical to you know, team performance. It's like the number one factor. Now, the more that we can talk about our own struggles and challenges and get other people to talk about our mistakes, the better, right? That's going to help a lot of individuals to deal with the things that are difficult, especially those difficult players who have difficult things they deal with. And if they can realize they're not alone in those struggles, and what oftentimes is a trigger for them, that, that is huge. And I think that brings us to another thing, which is helping these individuals, coaching these individuals and all our players really to predict what are our stressors? What are our triggers? You know, you talked about earlier in, in the episode around how like we as coaches need to know what really triggers us. Because if we don't understand that, we can't regulate ourselves emotionally. We can't be in control. Well, it also comes down to us working with our players to help identify those things. The whole name it, detain it. You know, it, it works obviously sometimes in the moment to name something that's you might be feeling some sort of emotion, some sort of anger to help, you know, the, the research shows that it helps for that individual to, you know, become a little bit calmer. But the more we can anticipate those triggers, know what they are, know what those things are difficult, the more that we can work and coach that individual to overcome those. And we, we had Billy Armstrong on the podcast, you know, 10, 15 episodes ago, talking about how last season he had a few difficult individuals on his team that he ended up working what we call intentional interventions. Hey, this is something you struggle with. This is an agreed upon way that I'm going to support you and help you in that moment. And it was off, honestly one of the difference makers in, you know, their season and being able to become, you know, state champions that year was because those players that were not difficult players, but had difficult things that they had to overcome. He became this coach that was kind of coaching and mentoring them through those things. And it all came down was first starting to identify what are their triggers. And then they have this relationship where they see him as a support, someone that can help overcome those things. And JP, I think what you're describing right there is really coaching, right? Like we're looking at this behavior as something that can be coached. In the same way that we look at a left-handed layup as something that can be coached, I can give them tips on techniques that will help them have a better chance to make a left-handed layup. 
one of the things that we have to caution ourselves as as coaches is is the is labeling, right? Uh, labeling a difficult player, labeling a difficult personality, and then thinking that that's who they are rather than a, a behavior that can be coached or finding the root of that thing where we can coach into them, as you said, interventions that can help them to be able to to grow in that area. And and honestly, you know, coaches that embrace a growth mindset, right? And this is one of the, the common words that we hear surrounding that conversation about having kids with a growth mindset is we encourage them to use the word yet, right? My daughter can't make a left-handed layup yet, right? Our team can't, you know, shoot 40% from whatever yet, right? And the idea is that by using that word, it's implying that we can get there. We're just not there yet. And sometimes for coaches, when you're looking at difficult players, that's a word that you need to work into your vocabulary. JP doesn't have great body language yet, because it implies that there's still hope for JP, that he can get the support, that I can try to coach him in that place. And again, goes all the way back to your perspective on they're on a journey. They're maybe not where we want them to be yet. They may not get there while they're playing for us, but they are a work in progress. And it's our job to help coach them in those things, just as we do in the technical aspects of the game. I love that. And I want to add another tool to the tool bag here for coaches on this, because really, you know, first off, I think it's important just to communicate this to, to the listeners, which is that these things that oftentimes make players difficult, these things that are difficult for players, these triggers, these stressors, these things that make them uncoachable, make them react emotionally. These stressors, the more we can make them controllable, predictable, and moderate, the more that we can help influence th those things, the better. And I think what we've been talking about here, like even use, using the word yet, you know, normalizing these, these adversity and struggles, first off, we're trying to help them to see this as not some the extreme event that they interpret it to be a little bit more moderate, but we're also trying to help them to bring a sense of control over this adversity, this struggle, this difficulty that they're facing. And back to the story of the college hockey coach that I work with, there one of the things that we came out in our conversation that I suggested was I just said, you know, maybe think about a way since this player wants to be a coach someday that you could give them just a little bit of control over part of the practice. Maybe they can lead a drill. Maybe they can spend time after practice breaking down film with you guys, you know, just if you can give them sense of uh, sense of control, sense of ownership, you know, within the team. And they also get, it's, it's tied to the fact that they actually desire to be a coach someday and that could help them. And at first the coach was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I really don't know if I want to spend any time in a room more than I have to, you know, breaking down film. But then this kind of like, you know, they're going about the week and all of a sudden like he recognizes he actually saw that that player was coaching a few other players uh, and some youth program that, that, uh, in the community, he's like, he actually has got some pretty good skills at coaching this one element of skating. And so he encourages and challenges the player to like, Hey, why don't you run this in our practice? And it goes incredibly well, right? And like just this, this opportunity, like he's going to teach a little bit on this one skill in practice, hands it over to that individual, an area that the coach actually was a little bit like, yeah, I'm not, it's not my favorite area to coach, but just that sense of control giving back to them, you know, is it can do so much for that individual, can do so much for that individual's motivation as well. Like when we feel like we have a sense of control, not only are we going to respond better to adversity, but we're mo more motivated when we show up to work or to practice or to games. And so look for opportunities for that difficult player to give them that sense of control. 
Well, so far, JP, we've talked about two of the three prongs kind of in our approach to coaching difficult players, one being to understand better, two being to find ways to be more supportive of that individual. But we do recognize that there are some behaviors that simply can't be tolerated. And maybe those are detrimental to the team. Maybe those behaviors you know, erode at your culture, the culture killing behaviors. They might be disrespectful of teammates or coaches or opponents or officials, whatever it might be. And if a player crosses a line, there's got to be some kind of consequence in order to protect your culture and to be able to enforce um, the values and the behaviors that you want, obviously, repeated in your program. So, so I think the first key when it comes to establishing and enforcing your standards is if you have to be clear in your communication. It's really hard to work backwards when a player crosses a line. Let's say that they do something disrespectful to a teammate on the bus. And you haven't ever really talked about what's expected on the bus before. So now you go backwards and say, ah, but when you put shaving cream on somebody's head, I mean, that's rude and you know makes a mess on the bus and the kid was asleep and you know that's not a kindness. And, and you're like starting the conversation around your values and behaviors on the bus for the first time in reaction to something that's happened you know, already. Now, does that mean that we have to create some laundry list of all of the behaviors that could happen just in case so we can refer back to some page in your manual and say, oh, look, we talked about this. You were supposed to read about this and now you're going to hold them accountable? Not necessarily. But when you have had those conversations about what your values should look like and what behaviors you want to represent your program on the bus and in the restaurant and on the court and on the bench, it becomes much easier to come back and have what I call the the look man conversation. Like my players know that if I pull them aside and I just say, look, man, we've talked about what we need on the bench. We need energy, we need enthusiasm. And I know you might be frustrated you're not playing, but you gotta make a decision. Either you're gonna be for us or you're gonna wallow in your own self-pity, but this isn't going to work. Like when they hear look man, they know that the truth is coming and a decision is going to have to be made because we've already had the conversation about what's expected, about what helps the team when you're not playing and on the bench. And, and those are the expectations that we're trying to live up to. As I said, it, it's really hard to work in reverse. So being clear up front can give you sort of the ammunition and the starting point to be able to address those things and recognize them when they are over the line or cross a boundary. I love that. It's a great example because I think it's so important in that look man conversation that you just had there. Not only do they know what the standard is kind of going to that, but they know what's coming after that, which, you know, like at the end of the day, it's like, all right, you're going to act like that. You're going to take a walk to the locker room and recompose yourself when you're come out, ready to come back out here and be for us. You're, you're free to do so. Once again, sense of control. They still have a con control. They still have a choice in that moment. And, you know, I love how you phrase that as a choice. Here's one of the things I want to leave coaches with on when it comes to these difficult players and boundaries, consequences, accountability. Accountability is a big buzzword, obviously, right? There's two big reasons I see coaches that I work with that don't hold players accountable. The first is because we care about winning or because other people care about winning. And oftentimes that difficult, challenging player is critical for us to win. You know, and if you remove that really talented player, you're probably not going to win as many games that season. Now, there's an argument to be made for the long term. You know, you should care more about culture for the long term of your program. But in the, that moment, that game or that season, holding a player accountable could lead to losing in a lot of games. And, and people don't like to lose, right? None of us like to lose. And that's, that's a legitimate reason. 
So I think we really need to be clear on when it comes to those behaviors that are totally unacceptable and that we will hold that individual accountable. Hey, we're going to work with you and we're support with you. We understand you're on a journey, but at the end of the day, like these things, if you don't do them, even if it means that we lose, we're going to hold you accountable to those things. There's going to be consequences and it's probably going to be the bench. It's probably not going to be as much playing time as you want, but you're clear about that. And that takes a lot of courage. I get that, but that's why we need to be clear about it beforehand. The other reason that we avoid accountability is because we, we actually generally care about the person. And oftentimes consequences are painful for that individual. But we've talked about this before. You know, Empathy without accountability is just a short-sighted attempt to relieve an individual's suffering. But we do need accountability. And we need accountability in the right way, probably more than ever, especially some of these individuals that are, we like to label as difficult, the ones with a lot of challenges. They may come from a home or situation or just honestly a culture that doesn't hold them to the standard, that doesn't hold them to a behavioral standard. They don't, they don't expect a lot out of the individual. And if we can hold them to certain standards and certain expectations, we can do it in a way that's still loving and kind and respectful to the person, that can be transformational for people. And one of the stories that I, you know, I, I come back to time and time again in this podcast and, and I've talked about in my book is the story of Akil, you know, a young man that I coached you know, seven, eight years ago. And, and he was you know, a challenging player for us. And you know, it was one of those situations where you really, you know, we weren't going to kick him off the team probably because I cared about him and because it wouldn't have gone over well with everybody else, but I held him to the standard every day. I wasn't good at all the supportive stuff, all the things that we talked about today, but I got really good at being really clear on what our standard was. And then I got really good at enforcing that standard in a way that was kind and respectful. And there was conversations where he wouldn't, you know, we'd have to sit him out of drills. We'd sit him out of games. And I always came back to, man, I care about you. The team needs you, but we're just not going to allow this type of behavior to happen, you know, because I expect too much of you. And also because I have to protect the team, which is another thing when we struggle with this, this care about the person and we don't want to hold people accountable is we have a responsibility to our players, to the other players, not just that individual. And we have to protect the culture and the experience for everyone. And we can't sacrifice it just because of the care of one individual. And that's just why it's so important, Nate, that yes, we see this person, we're there to support them, but we also come in there and we hold them accountable. We enforce consequences when it's appropriate and in the right way, uh, because that's about us caring about our culture. And that's truly about caring about that individual. Well, JP, as we wrap up our conversation this week, I'm going to put a little asterisk on the end of this here, because I do think that there are times where Players are who they are to a certain extent. And I'll give you an example that maybe makes this make a little bit more sense. A lot of us have probably had the ultra competitor on our team at some time. Like they're so competitive that they stick out above everybody else, right? Maybe they get frustrated when they lose the game of Candyland at the team dinner, or maybe they, you know, complain about your calls all the time and three on three and they punch the wall when they lose. And like, there's some behaviors there that are a little bit over the top because they want to win so bad. And sometimes if your team doesn't know how to respond to that, it can create some challenges, right? And it can be difficult to coach through. And I do think that there is something to be said for insulating the rest of your team from the difficult player, the difficult personality, the difficult competitor, because there's value in what they bring. There's value in who they are. Maybe it's their skill set. Maybe it's their approach. Again, maybe it's their competitiveness. And the rest of the team has to learn how to interact with that without maybe 
being so overreactive to it themselves. And that could look like, again, could be competitiveness. It could be a certain player's tone of voice. It could be their just default, you know, facial expression is not very responsive or not very emotive or not very encouraging. And we can coach that and we can try to understand it, but we can also minimize sort of the effect that it has on others by just encouraging other people to have a little more grace or a little bit more patience. And I'll tell you what that's looked like for us in the past is when we've had one of those ultra competitors, we might do a mental health day or a team conversation on the importance of competitiveness. You know, and try to draw out a little bit of the passion from that player about, you know, why she wants to win so bad and she loves the feeling of winning and she hates the feeling of losing, you know, and asking the team, do we need some of that to be better? Like, does that attitude help our performance on the court? And everybody's like, yeah, 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 it does. Yeah, it does. And then, you know, asking, but is there a way where it goes too far? You know, and so in a sense, we're trying to sort of take that and put it in a bottle, so to speak, in order to to get the value, to benefit from the value of that competitiveness. And at the same time, when other players, you know, see their teammate slam the basketball after they lose, they don't get overreact. They don't overreact. They don't take it personally. You know, they, they don't feel like the team bond has been broken. They just sort of understand, well, you know, there's JP again, frustrated that he lost. You might even take chuckle at it when you turn around a little bit, that overreaction. But in a way, you're minimizing the potential damage by preparing others to be able to respond in a more positive way. And Nate, what you're talking about there is empathy, helping our players to empathize and be more accepting of other individuals' differences and, you know, and understanding their struggles. It's a very good and practical takeaway. And I think we'll just finish there today. Thank you, everyone, for listening in to the Coaching Culture Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, share it with others, and reach out to us if you want to go deeper and get better.